And just before we get going, I want to thank you so much, Grace Community Church, for your faithfulness and prayer for the elders of Grace Community Church and in your generosity and kindness in supporting us so that we could go away for a retreat. We had a wonderful time. Really appreciate Pastor John orchestrating the details and making it possible for us to go. Uh, it was just an absolutely blessed experience, especially for me. I just love being with these men, and I love hearing their wisdom and walking with them together. One of the things that we, we spent our time on, we spent our time on a number of different issues, but one of them, which I know has been of concern to many of us, is the direction that we'll be taking in terms of our youth and how we intend to disciple our youth under mature biblical manhood and womanhood in Christ. And so as we begin to think through that together as a congregation, in the next two weeks, I'd like you to expect seeing an email from the church with a five-question or four or five-question survey. We're going to have three demographic questions, and then really it's basically just two questions. We want you to look at that, answer it, and respond back to us so that we can get a sense for what the, church, uh, what the church's voice is in this matter, so that we as the elders can, can work with you to lead you ably in appointing our next steps for youth ministry. So just keep that, keep your eyes out for that and feel free to talk with any of the elders about the time that we had. It was a great time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for your prayers. So with that, let's take a moment and let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts to study Christ's word. Holy and eternal Father, the only true judge, we confess that with our eyes, we cannot judge rightly, that we judge by appearances. And without your Holy Spirit, it is impossible for us to understand or judge rightly. Father, work in our hearts and root out a self-serving love to seek our own glory. And in so doing, lift the scales of our own self-obsession from our eyes and open our eyes to behold your glory and in its light cause us to judge things rightly. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Friends, if you're joining us, we are working through the Gospel of John. We come now to John chapter 7 and we're looking at the first section, verses 1 through 24. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you Open your Bible and follow along with me as we work through this section. This section has a number of difficult bits in it. So if you were, if you were listening, it wouldn't surprise me at all, if you're at all like me, that you had at least one or two questions from this passage. I'm going to do my best to answer some of them, but inevitably I'm going to miss some of them just because we only have so much time. But I always love talking about the Bible, so if you ever want to talk about it, just find me. For today, what we're focusing on in this section, the main theme of this sermon and this passage, I think, is that faithfully seeking God's glory plants us in his time, grows true obedience, and unites us to his eternal glory and purpose. Faithfully seeking God's glory plants us in his timing, grows true obedience, and unites us to his eternal glory and purpose. It's hard to summarize this passage, I think, this section. 
And it's leading up to an even more uh, impressive section. <laughs> We're setting up for the Feast of Booths. We'll deal with what that is next week. For right now, if we were to summarize this passage, I think we would have to say that Jesus responds to his brother's challenge to take his ministry public and to specifically do so by going intentionally and publicly to Jerusalem as a teacher, as a prophet, as the Messiah. And Jesus responds to their challenge by saying, no. No, I won't do that. But he still ends up going to Jerusalem. And this ends up with a confrontation with the crowds. And if you know your Bible and you know the next section, after the confrontation with the crowds leads to a confrontation with the Pharisees, that leads to a confrontation with the council, the authority, the governing body, and then they try and arrest Jesus. So it's going to get real intense real quick. When, it's, when you find a passage that's hard to navigate, it's good to pick a verse that can act like a compass through that passage, that can sort of guide you through that map. And I would like you to use verse 24. I would like to suggest that verse 24, as you probably guessed from my prayer, is the verse that I think is the compass for this passage. Verse 24 reads, do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. I think that's the essence of this passage. It's his conclusion from verses 22 and 23. In 22 and 23, Jesus says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken... Why are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. There's a way in which that the crowds arrive at a particular conclusion about Jesus' ministry, which results from judging him by appearances. And there's a way of responding to Jesus' ministry that is actually a perceptive understanding of it. It's, it's a right judgment of it. It esteems the work of Christ. So in verses 22 and 23, Jesus is pointing out how by supposedly keeping the law, the Jews are actually blind to its purpose. Like a man who assiduously keeps the speed limit and yet has no conception for what a car can do to a human being when it strikes it at a given speed. They understand, I must keep this law, but they have no idea why. And as a consequence, they have no understanding for why Jesus does what he does. And he tells them that there's a reason for this problem. And this reason is in verse 18. So in verse 18, he says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. He says that the reason that they misunderstand the law is because deep down they are more concerned with their own glory than they are with God's. A man who speaks on his own authority is a man who thinks of himself as having enough to establish what he says, that you should take his words simply because of who he is. 
But Jesus contrasts that with himself. He says he speaks on the authority of the one who sent him, God. And that this is the fundamental distinction between judging by appearances. Oh, he seems like a guy who knows what he's talking about. I suppose I should listen to him. And saying, he seems like a man who speaks the very words of God. I should listen to him. This self-interest, this concern with our own glory, is ultimately displayed in at least two places in this passage. So we get sort of two case studies of what false judgment looks like. The first is Jesus' brothers who try and bait him into going public, making it the big time. Go to Hollywood, man. If this is legit, you've got to go all the way. And they tell him to do it at the most popular festival, the Harvest Festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. This, this is the festival, man. This is when everybody's going to be there because this is going to be a party time. Well, in this passage, Jesus shows us how the mind that is chiefly concerned with its own glory and not that of its maker is actually incapable of faithfully understanding or responding to God's good timing, law, or purposes. The mind that is chiefly concerned with its own glory, that is most concerned with what's good for me and what makes me look good, is not concerned with the interests of its maker, is not concerned with the interests of God, is not concerned with God's glory. And as a consequence, it is not just unwilling, but actually incapable, incapable of faithfully understanding or responding to God's good timing, law, and purposes. The result is they judge by appearances. They don't judge with right judgment. And for such a mind and a heart, there is no such thing then as God's time. And you'll notice I'm walking backwards sort of in my exegesis of the text. So the brothers tell him, go up to the city, and what does Jesus say? He says, but you, your time is always here. Look at verse 6. Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. Part of what we're doing today is we're going to unpack that verse. We need verse 24 in order to unpack verse 6. So for such a mind and a heart that is, that is completely following after its own glory, there is no such thing as God's time. And even God's own words sound hollow and dull rather than dynamic, penetrating, joyful, and true. So the big question as we, that we're asking in this passage is, what does it mean to judge by appearances? What does it mean to judge by appearances? And how is that rooted in unbelief? Again, look at verse 5. Just before Jesus tells them about their time is always here, we have this almost afterthought. John says, for not even his brothers believed in him. The root of the brother's suggestion to Jesus arises not because they just want what's good for Jesus. It isn't there because they're like, wow, dude, you're doing so great. We'd just like to see this go big time. 
the root of their intent, the, the reason they're asking him to do this is because they don't believe in him. And that should, that should twist your brain a little bit. It doesn't seem like it. Throughout this passage, John is fleshing out what it means to judge with right judgment by showing us two kinds of judgment and two resulting responses. The first kind is to judge by appearances, verse 24. And the second is to judge with right judgment. He gives us two examples of what it looks like to judge by appearances. The first is Jesus' own brothers, and we see it in verses 1 through 5. The second is the crowd, and we see that in verses 11 through 18. These two people, groups, are doing the same thing very different ways. They display unbelief in different ways, but they arrive at the same conclusion. That when someone, or that what someone chooses to do, and their relationship to the law or the word of God, should always be moving in their own advantage. The unbelieving mind, which judges by appearances, which does not have a conception of God's time, for whom all time is the right time, it looks at itself and its relationship to the law as always to be moving in its own advantage. It's always to serve their own interest, always to get what suits them. To put it another way, there are two basic responses to Jesus' ministry and God's word in this passage. One is to be using those things, God's ministry and God's word, as tools to advance our own glory. In other words, we use the Bible and we use what God has given us in our life to make us look better to us and to other people. And the other is a pathway into joyful communion with God's glory. The other way, if, if the first way cuts you out of God's time, the other way puts you right into it. When Jesus goes up, he goes up because it is God's time. It is Kairos time. It is that sanctified, special, providential, passionate, purposeful, joyful, delightful moment for obedience. See the stark difference? So let's look at these examples. Let's, let's look at this unbelief. Let's figure out what it means to judge by appearances. First, let's look at the brothers. Look at verses 3 through 5. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now there are a multitude of reasons why any person says any one thing. And sometimes us trying to get at why a person says what they say can be a fruitless exercise. Scripture doesn't tell us particularly why they said this, but it does tell us why generally. They said this because they did not believe in him. So something about this betrays something about unbelief. I can imagine at least two ways, there's probably more, that the brothers could be understood here. The first way to think about it is that the brothers do not in fact believe that Jesus is a miracle worker. And they are baiting him to go and show what he can do. 
They think that a dose of good, cold, hard reality will bring him to his senses and send him home ashamed. Kind of like when you're a small kid in elementary school, there comes that stage where you start boasting about the things that you can do, even if you maybe can't. Like, I can shoot 100 you know, shots from the free throw line. Get them all in. Everyone's like, uh-huh, okay. And what's the solution? Eventually, kids wise up, and they're like, I know the solution to this. Go out there and do it. <laughs> there's a free throw line. Throw me 100. <laughs> so there's one way of looking at this and saying that, G- that the brothers are looking at Jesus and be like, yeah, 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 bread from heaven. Yeah, uh-huh. Yes, yes, you do. You've always been a special one, Jesus. Now go and show us. You going to do this? Don't do it over here in these small ponds. You're a big fish. You swim in the big pond. Go to Jerusalem. You show them. But the deep down they know he can't do it. Now that would pair up with Mark chapter 3, verse 21, right? Where his mother and his brothers show up to Jesus and try to take him into custody because they think he's lost his mind. They genuinely think he's insane. They think that he thinks that he can work miracles, but they're like, oh, no, he can't. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Jesus, come over here. Stop talking about these things. You're embarrassing the family. So there's one option. They think that Jesus can't actually work the miracles, and they're trying to get him to get a cold, hard dose of reality, wake up to the fact that you can't, then you'll come home, and you'll be the elder brother that you're supposed to be. Because in that society, Jesus is the firstborn in the household. Joseph is dead. He should be providing for his mother. And there's social shame being brought on the household. And they're like, dude, get over this and get home. Run the business. I don't know what you're doing over here. The other option is that they do believe that he does work miracles, but they don't believe in him. They do believe that he does work miracles, but they don't believe in him. And we've seen this distinction beginning to develop over the course of John's gospel, right? That there's a way to believe in Jesus that isn't really believing in Jesus. There's a way to follow Jesus that isn't really following Jesus. And when finally his miracles come right up against his teaching people drop him. So there's a way for this to be the case. In other words, they don't trust him as their Messiah. They don't receive his words as their truth. They're not willing to submit to his ministry. Instead, they're fascinated by his miracles. And they're encouraging him to go to Jerusalem because they think that that is what they, if they were miracle workers, would do. The natural thing to do, Jesus. You can pull off some pretty good tricks. I bet you this could get us some good following. You should go to Jerusalem and do it. All I got to do is charge 50 cents for every person that comes in, and we'll make it. They see it differently. That we can see from the, so these two options are coming either from, uh, the first one comes from if you do these things. That's the possibility they don't believe him at all, if you do these things. But the second possibility comes from, for no one works in secret. The idea like, okay, well, if you do do these things, don't keep it hidden, get out there and do something with it. Now, I favor the first explanation because of Mark. I think that the, the synoptic gospels push us in that direction. But in either case, we learn something really important about the nature of unbelief. That unbelief, regardless of its motivations, especially in this context, is fascinated by miracles. That seems backwards, right? 
Don't we all secretly kind of in our heart wish that God would work a miracle in our unbelieving friend's life? Because if he did that, surely then, surely then they would believe in him. Do not the neo-atheists often mock God in this way? Like, well, if God really is there, why doesn't he show up and do something? Why doesn't he demonstrate himself? Why won't he demonstrate the... You know, friend, do you see the fascination with the miraculous? And its connection with unbelief? Because I do. Unbelief, regardless of its motivations, remains fascinated by miracles. We know that the man of lawlessness, the ultimate expression of the Antichrist, when he is released upon the world, what does he do? He works miracles. And people are like, hey, miracles. And they go towards it. There's a fascination with miracles that doesn't necessarily mean that there's genuine faith involved. Unbelief thinks that what mattered most about Jesus' ministry was his signs and his wonders and not his words. Look carefully at verses 17 through 18. Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. There's a connection. Jesus says the reason that anyone will believe in what he says is determined by whether or not their heart wants to do the will of God. Jesus says the reason why you'll listen to Jesus or not is determined by whether or not you want to do the will of God. And ultimately, if we look under that, the reason is because they are more interested ultimately in either their own glory or God's glory. If you're interested in your own glory, you'll be fascinated with miracles, but you'll be offended at the words of Christ. He'll compound that later. He then indicates that what unites him to anyone who truly hears his words as God's is that they both seek the glory of God above their own. In other words, that the person who seeks God's glory above their own hears in Jesus this similar spirit, that they're both equally desperately interested in seeing God's glory made known. And that's what lends credibility and authority to that person's speech. What causes someone to receive Jesus in faith is not chiefly whether he can heal the sick, but whether what he says is true. And the real reason why we would believe or trust Jesus' words or not results from whether we are more in love with our own glory or God's whether we have found Jesus to be our bread of life, to call back to our last few sermons. Unbelief, then, is rooted in a deep personal love for our own glory and our own advancement. That is at least in part what it means to judge by appearances. People who judge by appearances are blinded by the fact that they are more concerned with what benefits them than what's true. Someone who is in love with their own glory makes their choices to place them in the best possible relationship to other people. 
someone who is in love with the glory of God makes choices informed by and in keeping with that glory. The person who seeks their own glory is chiefly concerned with their relationship with other human beings and making sure that that's a good one. And the person who is concerned with the glory of God is chiefly concerned with their relationship to God and making that a good one. This doesn't mean that they don't care about other people, but this is the one that orients their decisions. The brothers want Jesus to go up to Jerusalem and to display his miracles there because of what they value. They value human approval. Whether it's that they think Jesus is a nutcase and they are sick and tired of being looked down on because Jesus is wandering around shaming the family name and they would really like this to stop, do you see what they're concerned about? They're not concerned about Jesus' health or welfare. They're concerned about themselves looking bad. Or if it's because they do think that he works miracles, then they're more concerned with what you should do with that. The sorts of folks who are excited by truth, who are excited by sound teaching, are simply not the kind of people that the brothers of Jesus are themselves impressed by, nor are they anyone the brothers think are worth impressing. Somebody who's concerned about the truth of what Jesus says is not the kind of audience that the brothers want Jesus paying attention to. The kind of person like Peter who says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. That kind of person, the brothers look down on. They don't care about him. They care about the person who chases around the, the entirety of the lake to find Jesus for some more bread. But that is precisely the person that Jesus eschews, and Peter is precisely the person that Jesus gathers. The brother's unbelief is actually an expression of worldly pride, a pride that is so strong it distorts their perception of reality and it causes them to judge by appearances and not with right judgment. The second example, so that's the brothers, but the second example offers us another perspective on unbelief, the crowd's unbelief. In verse 21, we do see some similarities between the brother's unbelief and the crowds. Look at verse 21. Now Jesus is speaking to the crowd. We know this because of verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them. So he's talking to them. I did one work and you all marvel at it. Do you see the connection? Unbelief is fascinated with miracles. The brothers were fascinated with miracles. And now he speaks to the crowd. He says, and he's probably referring to John 5, where he healed the man that was a paralytic, because he's back down in Judea now, right? So he said, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. The example of the crowd focuses, however, more on their understanding of and their response to God's law. So look now at verses 12 through 13, and you can see that the crowds are divided over Jesus, right? In verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So what do they mean by he is a good man? That means that he is doing what is lawful. He is a good rabbi. He is teaching people to obey the law the right way. And why is that then contrasted with he's leading people astray? Astray from what? 
astray from a right observance and obedience to the law. So a good man would lead people in right observance to the law. A bad man would lead them away from the law. So their focus is on the law. The law and our relationship to it plays a central role in understanding unbelief. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. We don't have time to, that's a sermon all on its own. We don't have time today to unpack that one. Central to the Jews' rejection of Jesus is their perception of the law itself and how they related to it. It's central to understanding why they reject Jesus. The crowds, and especially the Jewish leaders, operated on the assumption that they are, by default, following the law. Their ordinary day looks like 90% at least following the law. That's their ordinary day. Most of their day is, I'm following the law. And frankly, most of them would not stop at 90. They would go to 100. They would say, I'm in the community of Israel. I've been circumcised. I practice the feasts. I make the prayers. I offer my tithes. I do the things that I'm supposed to do. I am 100% following the pattern of the law. I'm in it. I'm doing it. So to hear Jesus say, none of you keeps the law, is not just offensive, it's blowing their brain apart. They're like, what do you mean? My whole life is the law. That's how I run my business. That's how I dress in the morning. That's how I handle my children. That's how I go to church. Everything I do is the law. What are you talking about, Jesus? They thought that by following the law, by default, that the law justified them. Right? That's what God asked us to do, right? He said, keep the law. So I keep the law. That makes me pleasing to God. Now glance down to the conclusion of this story. It's outside our pericope. It's down in verse 45. The very end of this whole thing, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? This is where the division over Jesus, this he's a good man or he's not bit, reaches a fever pitch. The leaders try and arrest him, and the officers fail. That's what, that's what happens there. And in verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man, is what they say. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And they are met with fury. Verse 47, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You see how the, the highest authorities now, they look at their relationship to the law differently than the crowds. The crowds are walking along like, we keep the law. Our life is the law. So the question is, does Jesus lead us into the law or away from the law? And even the Pharisees, though, they look down on the crowds and say, they don't know the law and they're accursed. We know the law. We're the ones that are really keeping the law. We're the only ones that are able to judge whether this is good or not good. When the officers say, nobody spoke like this man, they're like, you've been deceived. So the Pharisees and the crowd believe that the law was on their side. That's the, that's the critical thing to walk away from. They see the law then as a tool. The law is a tool to make me right with God. Something that God gave to put their own righteousness on display. The law becomes proof that I'm good. 
Do you see? The law becomes proof that I am good. Now, at that moment, which glory is a person paying attention to? Their own or God's? If you know your good Sunday school answer, then you know that means they're paying attention to their own glory. And you also know what the law was sent to do. The law was sent to expose human weakness to show the glory of God. And that is what Jesus is pressing into. He's like, you are using the law contrary to its purpose, and it has deceived you. You are judging by appearances. You have the appearance of godliness, but you deny its power. You have the appearance of lawfulness, but you are not lawful. You don't have the law on your side. You see, for the unbeliever, even the greatest gifts of God, which are his words, are merely tools to advance their own interests. We take even the very words of God and we turn them against their proper purpose, which is to show us the glory of God and instead bend them to make it look like we are awesome. That is because the root of unbelief is longing for our own glory. And it's an implicit rejection of God's majesty. So let's consider a few marks of this unbelief. One, a mark of unbelief would be seeing the gifts of God's grace in your life, like his word, his community, what we're gathered in right now, perhaps your parents, his life. All these gifts of God as yours to do with as you please in order to provide the best life for yourself now. Seeing the gifts of God as yours to do with as you will in order to provide the best life for you possible now. Some of us participate in the family of God because of what it gets us. Some of us participate and obey God's word because of how it makes us feel. Some of us enjoy the life that God gave us without any consideration for why God gave it to us. All those things, if left unchecked, are marks of unbelief. Secondly, trying to use the signs and gifts of God as leverage to destroy other people's faith, like what the brothers are doing here trying to use the signs and gifts of God as leverage to destroy other people's faith. Some of us try and expose the weakness in other people's faith in order to make ourselves appear smarter, more pious, more moral, more holy. In other words, to give ourselves the assurance that we lack, that we are in fact good. And we'll use other people and their backs, we'll step on their backs to feel as though we actually have what we need in order to be good. Thirdly, resisting the truth and the grace of God when it exposes our spiritual need. Friend, no one, myself included, likes being revealed for who they truly are apart from Jesus. No one likes it, no matter how loving, kind, gracious, and good the person is when they come to confront you with your sin and show you your Savior. It doesn't feel good, friends. No one likes it, but the believer welcomes that knowledge. The believer takes that knowledge, goes to prayer, goes to Christ, and ultimately finds joy 
in seeing his Christ, his Savior's sufficiency for his need. But an unbeliever simply hates it. An unbeliever abhors being told that they don't, quote-unquote, measure up to some standard or that they lack something in and of themselves because ultimately it exposes their idolatry. So, friend, we have to move beyond, it's not like, it's, this is not just like, if you don't like to receive criticism, that's a sign of unbelief. Like, nobody likes to receive criticism. But a believer receives godly, loving, truthful, Christ-saturated, gospel-saturated criticism with an eye towards God's glory in their life. We receive it. We respond to it. We repent. But an unbeliever just turns it away. Fourthly, depending ultimately on ourselves. In verse 18, Jesus contrasts the one who speaks on his own authority, who seeks his own glory, with himself. Someone who sought only and always the glory of God. Someone who depends ultimately on themselves, sees God's law only as a tool for self-justification or self-exaltation. And they fail to see God's timing and providential purpose. And as a consequence, friend, they live a life of insignificance. A degraded, depreciated, ever-diminishing existence. One, while not ever beyond the reach of God's sovereign will... It's not as though they've somehow slipped out of the hand of God's control, yet they are not within the bosom of his gracious blessing. They are not enjoying the will of God's desire. They are simply under the expanse of God's will of decree. And friends, if we know that the only things that are built by Christ are the things that will last, that is why their lives are insignificant. Our lives are a breath, a vapor. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. Death is right in front of us. What we do here and now matters only in as much as it is connected to the glory of the eternal God. Why is this important? Oh man, I'm burning time. <laughs> Why is this important? This is important because to believe on Jesus and to do so perseveringly and faithfully for our whole life is the only way we can avoid the wrath of God. I belabor these points and I labor with you hard because I do not want a single person that assembles and hears the word of God to enter into his eternal wrath. And the only way to escape the eternal wrath of God is to turn aside from your own glory, to turn aside from your own insignificance, and to turn to his word and trust in him and in Christ's sufficiency alone. We must therefore mark the, the signs of unbelief so that we can root it out of our, the garden of our hearts like an invasive weed. The root of unbelief, a disinterest with God's glory, and an obsession with our own will poison our spiritual life. If we're going to obey Christ and judge with right judgment, we have to then avoid three pitfalls of self-seeking interest 
and then we'll apply it with a pursuit of God's glory. I'm going to move a little bit quicker here. One, seeking our own glory cuts us off and cuts us out of the joy of living in God's good timing. The first pitfall of unbelief is that seeking our own glory cuts us out of the joy of living in God's good timing. In verse 6, when Jesus says, my time is not yet come, he's referring to the cross, but it's that second bit, your time is always here. Jesus says that he's not going up to Jerusalem on their terms. He will not go up to Jerusalem the way they want him to go. The expression that his time has not yet come indicates that Jesus makes his decisions never on what will gain him the most or the greatest number of followers, but rather always by prayerfully discerning God's prompting and purpose. The brothers at least appear to want Jesus to go up to Jerusalem for the sake of popularity or a reality check, but Jesus intends to go to Jerusalem to accomplish God's plan of salvation by dying on a cross. These two purposes could not be further from each other. When Jesus says, your time is always here, he means that for someone who is not concerned with the glory of God, there is no right or wrong time to act. Their decisions and actions are always going to be divorced from the joyful blessing of God's purpose. For someone whose concern is not the glory of God, there is no right or wrong time to act because your decisions and actions are divorced from the joyful blessing of God's purpose. That doesn't mean that Jesus' brothers are outside the sphere of God's sovereign grace, but they are severed from joy in faithful obedience. Secondly, seeking our own glory grows a hatred for godly obedience. The second pitfall is that seeking our own glory doesn't just cut you out of the joy of God's living, it makes you hate it. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. The purposes and lives of God's people and the world are ultimately utterly opposed. The brothers cannot understand why Jesus would not go up to the feast or why someone who works miracles would do so privately. But this eagerness to burst his supposed messianic delusion may be how Jesus discerns their heart posture. The world hates him, not for the miracles he does, but because he calls out their sin. The world hates him, not for the miracles he does, but because he calls out their sin. We must beware letting unbelief linger in our hearts, because as it lingers, it festers. And as it festers, it hardens into a bitter hatred of God's word, so that his word, when it comes to us, instead of cutting straight through a soft heart, straight to our core and our inner being, it butts up against the hardness of sin that says, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Unbelief finds God's testimonies bitter, and you will not listen to what you hate. Thirdly, seeking our glory distorts our perception and our response to God's law. Look at verses 22 through 23, where Jesus says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body whole. 
And if we imagine unbelief to be necessarily irreligious, we miss its most dangerous form. If you imagine unbelief to necessarily be irreligious, meaning it, it doesn't go to church, it doesn't clothe itself with the marks of morality, it isn't concerned with living a good, moral, lovely, friendly, nice life, we've missed the most dangerous form of unbelief, which is pious unbelief, faithless religiosity. The Jews were so obsessed with keeping the letter of the law that they failed to see the spirit, the intent, or the purpose of it. And when we are more in love with our own glory than God's, that preoccupation blinds us to rightly understanding and responding to God's law. It keeps us from rejoicing and enjoying the commands of his grace. The law then forever becomes an obstacle to our joy instead of the occasion of it. We will never be able to read Psalm 119 and agree with it. If you want, that's a good follow-up to this sermon. Go read Psalm 119. See how much the psalmist loves the law of God. Not because it makes it shows him to be righteous, but because it makes him righteous. It brings him to God. Application. Seeking God's glory by his grace puts us in the right place at the right time for his good purpose. Jesus is showing us the wonderful freedom and joy that is available to the one who depends on God's grace by giving their life to pursue and enjoy God and his eternal glory. If for the brothers any time is the right time, cutting themselves off from the blessing of God's timing, then the opposite is also true. The faithful patience of Jesus changes our experience of time, even profoundly difficult time. Remember, why, what would be the right time for Jesus to go to Jerusalem? The right time to go to Jerusalem is to die in obedience to God on the cross for sinners. The most difficult task that is kairos time for Christ. That is the Lord's providential, gracious time. It, Hebrews says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't go to the cross filled with sorrow. He went to the cross filled with joy because to obey God out of faithful patience, looking to God's glory, opens us to his joy. It fills us with pleasure. The law of God becomes the instrument of God to bring us into the joy of God for the glory of God as opposed to the obstacle to our joy. It becomes our friend and not our enemy. And the time of God becomes sweet and our lives become infused with God's time. Every minute then holds an abundance of his grace, even those minutes that are filled with the brokenness of this world. Because seeking God's glory as the object of our life and the object of our choices orients us rightly with respect to the law and with respect to Christ. We rejoice when the law shows us our sin because it shows us our Christ. We rejoice when the law shows us the holiness of God because in Christ's great fulfillment of the law, we become heirs of that righteousness. The words and the law of God become for us, when we trust in Christ, the key that unlocks the glory and the grace of God. 
so that we can say with the psalmist, Psalm 11, 7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Or Psalm 17, verse 50, as for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. Or Psalm 16, 11, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we respond to this passage, we should beware, root out the evidences of unbelief in our heart, and instead give ourselves to wanting to do the will of God and seeking his glory above our own, because it's that posture that makes all times, by God's grace, the right time. And wherever we become, and wherever we are, no matter how hard it is, becomes the place of God's delight. Because the blessing of God's providence and gracious favor is for those who believe in Jesus and who live for his eternal glory. Amen. Let's pray. God, have mercy on the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, we beg that you would preach a better sermon in our hearts than my lips could ever produce. Oh God, give us eyes to see your glory and hearts to love your praise. Give us right judgment, a right relationship to the law by faith in your son, Jesus Christ, so that you would plant us in your time and give us joy in faithful obedience. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.